0: I you to turn towards the end of your Bible to Revelation chapter 21. We won't be reading the entire passage, but parts of it. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. Life is fundamentally a gift from God. God created life as an expression of his goodness and a reflection of his glory. And of course, living in a fallen world, we find that life is under a curse of sin and death. But beyond the grave lies the promise of eternal life for all those who will believe upon God's provision for redemption through Jesus Christ. We have examined now for several months the core doctrines of the Apostles' Creed, and we come tonight to our final message, having explored the character of God, having explored the person and work of Christ, the foundation of our salvation through his life, death, and resurrection, the doctrine of the church, the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, and tonight coming on the resurrection of the body and now the life everlasting, the Christian vision offers hope of a new world, of a new heavens and earth that will be ushered in by God at the very end of time as we know it, when God will pay the full payment that was pledged by the Lord Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. Let us read then from Revelation 21 to gain insight into the beatific vision of God. I will cover verses 1 through 8. And in 20, verses 22 to the end, John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, And he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in a lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And passing on to verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, It will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know all of our thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in us, and lead us in the way everlasting. Amen. I've heard a number of news stories in recent weeks and months highlighting the dilemma that many students are facing, those with recent high school diplomas and even those with college degrees, struggling to find suitable and adequate work. And going through a season in our culture of of lowering their confidence that these young people will enjoy the same standard of living as their parents. Heard one story of a young lady who left her four-year college having acquired over $100,000 in debt and only able to find a job in retail because jobs in her area of study were scarce. It has become the expectation in our culture that education and hard work will bear fruit of pursuing the American dream to enjoy greater prosperity than our parents' generation. However, many commentators on our culture see the signs of the times that the, a mixture of economic and social problems have led to a collision of sorts between greater demands and yet poor delivery on those promises. High expectations meeting lower results. For many people, it has become difficult to imagine things Improving. Orphans growing up in a third world orphanage. You can hardly imagine what life would be like with two loving parents and financially secure. People who live in a society where government services are only procured through bribery can hardly imagine what it would be like to live in a society where one pays a fixed cost to gain services. A person born blind can hardly imagine what life would be like with sight. Believers at times find it quite difficult to imagine a sinless world. A world of perfection, where there is no danger, where there is no fear, where there are no threats. The famous author C.S. Lewis makes the attempt in some of his novels. In his space trilogy, he creates two different worlds of sinlessness. And where characters from earth go and almost taint and mar this sinless, perfect world. It's a very difficult thing to imagine. Cynics, unbelievers, those who question biblical truth might accuse Christians of trusting in empty promises and false hopes. And yet we find more and more people putting their hope in something, seeking after something that offers them an assurance that things will get better. Better. Christians are just as vulnerable as other people. To fall, in, fall prey to being too narrowly focused on this worldly material goods and failing to seek after heavenly rewards as we're instructed from Scripture. I heard a believer, a man in seminary a few years ago, who in his his gentle critique of his American brethren said that back home in Africa, his people talk about heaven all the time. Friends, where is our heart? And where are our desires? I find that often our desires, after true riches, can be too weak, tarnished by the comforts of this life. We receive little because we ask little. But unlike government or our consumer culture, God does not overpromise, under deliver. The Apostle John, in our text, is given giving brilliant insight into the eternal state. And here we are given not a detailed blueprint of the life everlasting, but a vision of life that far surpasses all of our wildest imaginations. We, in recent months, have studied the various core doctrines of our Christian faith. God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, the church, and so forth. And we come to conclusion, to meditate upon the Christian hope that there will be life everlasting when God will make all things New. Well, let's begin looking at this text. We have to reflect back upon the very beginning of Scripture, recognizing that a longing for a new heavens and a new earth began very shortly after the fall. It did not take long for our first parents to realize that things were not the way they were supposed to be, hoping and longing that God's long his promise would be fulfilled. We find brilliantly articulated by Isaiah that the vision of a new heavens and a new earth now being echoed here in John's apocalypse, that the existing heaven and earth will be replaced, it will be restored and renewed. In recent months, my wife and I have been conducting a home search as we have been trying to sell our home and thankfully by God's grace have recently sold our home and hope to settle in coming weeks. But as we were looking at homes and look, investigating homes at, at various states of new and old, seeing homes that were decades old, even over a hundred years old, having been renewed and being restored over and over by a dedicated, committed owner. So you gain a, an appreciation for the zeal and the will of God to want to renew and restore his good creation. Well, God's great overhaul project will be used to transform this existing stuff of earth and make it suitable and habitable for a people who will live with him forever. Now, verse 1 might disturb some, some people when it says that there will be no more sea in the new heavens and the new earth. I'm convinced by a number of commentators that what the language here is speaking more to the sea as a symbol of chaos. And for the Israelite people who saw the sea as a place of danger, as oftentimes enemy invaders would come and attack them by way of the sea. I'm convinced that the new heavens and the new earth will, there will be something at least as beautiful and far surpassing in all inspiration than the very ocean, even as we will behold the face of Jesus Christ himself. This past August, my family enjoyed a couple of days at the South Jersey Shore in a beach house, and we arrived there only days after the hurricane struck as we recall from last year. And the entire area had been protected from storm surge by large sand dunes and a structure that was in place to withstand the chaos of the sea and to preserve the beauty and the order of that community, even though it was vulnerable to danger. Now, while there, the weather was nearly perfect. And our children played morning and evening out on the dunes and in the sand, splashing in the ocean. And from our kids' perspective, we could just stay there indefinitely. They could have played all day and stayed there beyond our time of departure. Of course, for my wife and I, after a couple of days of dealing with sand and sunburns, we began to long for home again to return to our routine and other responsibilities. But I can't help but sense that the life everlasting is like being at the shore and never leaving with no more threats and with the, the promise of God's provision for us in Christ. The life everlasting, we find, is pictured next as a holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven as a bride, prepared for her husband. Years ago, my wife and I attended a glorious wedding of a childhood friend of mine, and as this very petite, uh, beautiful young lady was coming down the center aisle and met eyes with her groom, we all looked and notice that the groom, this big masculine man, was just weeping tears of longing, expectation, and great joy. The clever minister, as the couple came together, mentioned to the groom, he says, Paul, it's not that bad. But a moment of joy in the presence of tears, we note that the Bible begins with a wedding, of God officiating a wedding between Adam and Eve, and the Bible ends with a wedding. The new Adam, the second Adam, Christ being united with his church, his bride. Our wedding, for my wife and I over 14 years ago, was an all-day affair of ceremony followed by pictures and a reception at a country club with a dinner and dancing and music well into the midnight hours. My parents, years ago, attended a wedding in Mexico City that lasted over five days long. In other cultures, a wedding ceremony is a long celebration, a time of rejoicing for family and friends. And especially back in the Bible times, a wedding oftentimes was a long-term affair, where family come from long distances to celebrate and rejoice, and not something to be hurried. Well, a healthy wedding, a healthy wedding is a foretaste of the joy, the celebration that worshipers of God will enjoy in his presence for all eternity. The next vision that we see here in John's passage is a, a shift in the life everlasting that is now described as a dwelling place. We're reminded from the Lord Jesus on the eve of his crucifixion that he would go away from us to prepare for us many mansions that are ready for our dwelling place with him. It affirms here in our passage that, that God will come to dwell with us. If we reflect upon the book of Exodus and the wilderness wanderings of the Israelite people, you'll recall that one of Moses' concerns, that as Israel committed apostasy was the threat from God, one was to destroy Israel, a second threat was to remove himself from Israel and not go with the people, to not dwell with them, to not tabernacle with them. Here we have the assurance that God will dwell with his people. He will be our God, and there will be no more threat of his departure. He will not reject us or separate himself from us. And God will be a terror no more. The indicator here is that in God's presence, we will enjoy safety and security. God himself will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, nor no, no more cause for mourning Sadness will be gone. And all pain will be removed forever. I met a man last year by the name of Bill Freeman who a few years ago underwent a knee replacement surgery and suffered a a rare uh, but but very painful side effect. He suffered nerve damage which creates the sensation of pain constantly up from his foot, up his entire leg. And sadly, doctors are not able to do anything about although his knee functions well, he endures an intense amount of pain day and night. And medications do very little to relieve his suffering. Bill sleeps maybe three or four hours a night because the pain is so excruciating. And it makes him more vulnerable to illness and to irritability. And yet, this godly, humble servant of God rejoices and follows his Savior in his ministry to men. But Freeman acknowledges that he doesn't like the circumstance. He does not welcome the trial in and of itself, but he does recognize that God has sent this into his life as a blessing in disguise, as a constant reminder of his human frailty and his desperate need for God. Like Paul, who suffered a thorn, a mysterious thorn of some sorts, it creates in Bill a deep longing for heaven when there will be no more pain, no more suffering. Here is a man who is never unaware of this broken, fallen world, and constantly reminded to look forward, to look to future glory as a place, a life free from pain and filled with joy everlasting in a tender, warm embrace of God our Father for all eternity. In verses 5 through 8, we come to both a comforting promise and a confirming distinction between people's eternal destinies. The theme of new, the newness of the new heavens and new earth is repeated here. And an echo, a a recasting of the same vision that Isaiah was given in chapter 6 of his prophecy of seeing the Lord of glory on his throne in the temple. Here, John is ordered to record these words, for they are trustworthy and true. And on display is the power and might of God, who is God from everlasting to everlasting. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is without beginning and without end. And our God, who is the source of life and refreshment, Offers to the thirsty to drink from the spring of the water of life without payment. Jesus says at the Feast of Tabernacles in John 7, that on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Likewise, Isaiah chapter 55 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. Friends, we come empty-handed. We come without anything to barter with. We cannot haggle, but we accept the price. The price that was set by God, was an infinite cost that can only be paid by the Lord Jesus himself. And the offer to you and I is free to come to the wellspring of life, to no longer drink from our own cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water, the follies and the idolatries of this age, but to come to him who is the wellspring of life of eternal life. In recent years, the state of Texas, my, my homeland, has suffered droughts. Massive droughts uh, have plagued uh, its great lands and, co- and given rise to many forest and brush fires. Out in California, fi- farmers are in contention with environmentalists over the use of water from reservoirs, a scarce and precious resource. We're all familiar with images from drought and destitute-ridden Africa of people who have not enough water to drink or to grow their crops. The life everlasting will be drought-free. It will be a place of peace where there is no longer war over limited resources where nations will not rise up against one another. There will be no more political factions because we will have everything that we need. But we also see in this text that the cost of eternal life and peace was a great divide that was made between two kinds of people. We're introduced first to the people who conquer. There's references elsewhere in Revelation to the warriors who are warriors not by flesh and blood, but by spirit, who have held fast to the testimony of Jesus Christ, believing upon the gospel over the false promises of this world. To them will be given a heritage, the inheritance of the Son of God, as you and I will receive full adoption as sons and daughters of the living God. In contrast are the cowardly, the faithless, those who accuse God of wrongdoing, who fail to repent, who do what is detestable in God's sight, murder, immorality, sorcery, idolatry, those who are haters of the truth, who distort it to their own destruction and will burn for eternity in fires that cannot be quenched. A great divide has been laid before all humanity, and we're called to respond. We're called to respond to the will of God. The purpose of God in redemption. The God who promises that at that last day, the tares will be separated from the wheat. The goats will be removed from the company of the sheep who will be ushered in to the great pasture of God. A great separation will take place at that great day to enter into the life everlasting. So friends, I ask you tonight, are you a conqueror or are you a coward? The conquerors are those who live by faith and not cower to self-protection. Is it God that you seek for your help? Or is it in man, your own strength? Do you live for pleasure or do you hold out hope that God will provide something more satisfying than this life has to offer? And for those who are stuck in the old ways of the world, God invites you to embrace something new, something that only God can do, a life everlasting that only God can usher in by his power and might. Well, as we come to the third section of our text in verses 22 to 27, we see the emphases upon the light and the glory that will be on display in the life everlasting. Now, as it opens up, it makes reference to the temple. Now, in the ancient world, worshipers expected worship within a temple. However, we learn here that in the New Jerusalem, there will be no temple. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple. Interestingly, elsewhere in Scripture, we find that the church, the bride of Christ, is described as the temple of God. There's an appeal here, an emphasis here, on the intimacy and the universal access that people of God will have with the Lord Almighty. There will be no more mediated relationship. There will no longer be the need for a temple or a priest. There will no longer be churches or ministers. For we will all be mature and perfected and remade in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The way God intended for us to be from eternity past. It also says in our text that there will be no need for the sun or the moon to shine their light, for the glory of God will provide all the light that we need. The Lamb of God will be our lamp. And the theme shifts to the glory, to the glory that the nations and the kings will bring into the city of God. This summer, I look forward to the Olympic Games in London when athletes from all of the world will come to represent their nations and bring their glory and their honor, their talents, and their abilities to put on display before a watching world. Yes, people and our rulers, glory in fame, power, wealth, and so forth. But a day will come when all such boasting will cease, when the grand champion will be revealed, great upset of the ages when the church will prove victorious over the world, having conquered by the blood of a lamb. A bloodied, helpless lamb. A fitting image of how the world is turned upside down by the power and the wisdom of God. And you and I, if we will accept this, Recognize that we conquered not by might or human wit, but by the strength, power, and wisdom of God as revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We also see in our text symbols of security that the gate of this city will never be shut, that there will be no more darkness in the life everlasting. This may disappoint some who love their sleep, who love moonlit walks at night, but I believe that sadness is unnecessary as the image is intended to erase all of our fears, to remove all threats to our well-being in the life everlasting. I can recall as a child playing for long hours of the day in the summer and playing well into the evening until it was too dark and my mother had to call me in for the evening. A good childhood experience. A good childhood experiences, times in which you wished the experience would never end. A long, fun day at the amusement park. Leaving a good friend's home. Ending a game may bring sadness and tears. My children, especially the younger ones, love it when I pick them up and toss them around, throwing them on the couch or onto the bed. As their bodies flop on the cushion surface, I hear the cry, Again, Daddy! And I comply, and I pick them up, and I toss them around, and I play with them some more. And yet the Again, Daddy comes again, and again, and again. And even though I comply for a number of times, eventually I get fatigued. And I get distracted by other pressing concerns and responsibilities that demand my attention. And I recognize that joy is ingrained in the hearts of children. We are hardwired for joy. It's the wear and tear and the hard knocks of life in this fallen world that dull that joy. You know, Jesus says that unless we become like children, we will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In order to enter, we all must rediscover and embrace joy. We cannot let it be suppressed by our own self protecting fears. We must die to cynical attitudes. As Pastor Rogers emphasized this morning through the life of Sarah, the the matriarch. Friends, as followers of Christ, we must allow his spirit to rekindle our imaginations that have been lulled to sleep and believe hard and strong in the hope of life everlasting. The last word of the Apostles' Creed is amen. Jesus says it often. When he says, verily or truly I say unto you, it means truth. As Jesus revealed to Pontius Pilate, his very reason for coming into the world was to testify to the truth. And friends, that is our purpose as well. As we confess the Apostles' Creed regularly in our worship, and as we bear forth and manifest its truths in the way we live week in and week out, we are testifying to the truth, and we are affirming it with an amen. These words are trustworthy and true. As John writes here in verse 5. As we come to the very end of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 21, the final word is amen. A confirmation of the truth we profess to believe and that we will live out our lives holding fast to it, knowing that God will hold fast to us and will not give up on us and will not let us out of his perfect Recently, I heard a story about the life of John Donne, a renowned poet, but actually Anglican priest in the latter part of his life in the early to mid-17th century. John Donne was raised Roman Catholic, born into a very privileged family, had developed a reputation with the ladies as a youth and young man, had gone on adventures at war, and sought a cush job in the government to provide for his lifestyle. However, John Donne fell smitten with Anne Moore and secretly married her, which was a social faux pas in that culture, as Anne was the niece of one of the most powerful figures in England at that time. And the marriage was not smiled upon. And John Dunn suffered dearly for it, losing his positions of power, influence, and wealth, and opportunity. He and his wife lived in relative obscurity, struggling with income, and raising several children together. And then John lost the love of his wife, of his life as his wife died young after giving labor to a child. John Donne, in his heartbrokenness, and his desperation, turned to the Lord his God and sought his grace to reform his ways and to seek spiritual renewal. And as he sought company and attention from the king, the king refused to appoint John to any political or government post but exhorted him to become a priest. John complied and poured all of his heart and soul and burdens into the ministry and in time to come became the most electrifying preacher of his time across England. It is said that near his death, as he knew he was about to die, he compelled the king and the court to come to hear one of his final sermons and John Donne approached the pulpit in a death shroud what he would be buried in as a dramatic reminder of the reality of death our mortality that we will all face he had to stand firm upon the promise of life everlasting A man who did not realize his worldly dreams or aspirations or goals has received something far surpassing greatness and glory by holding fast not to the promises of the world, but to the hope of God in Jesus Christ. The hope that we have of life everlasting beyond the grave. I read for you just portions of John Donne's, one of his most famous poems, Death Be Not Proud. He writes, Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, for thou art not so. One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt be. Friends, we worship a God, and we hold fast to a Savior who has conquered sin and death, who has risen from the grave, who offers us the promise of life everlasting, the resurrection of the body, and to dwell in the presence of God for all eternity. May it be so. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Our gracious God and Father, we are so grateful that in Jesus Christ you have secured for us an eternal inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade away. We hold out hope of life everlasting. May you confirm it into our hearts and may we say heartily from this day forward, Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.